Hello and welcome to the Psycom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communications approaches. Psycom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psycom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their science outreach. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today, we have behind the, the microphones Sherry, Heather, Maria and me, Nevena. We recently had a very interesting, as usual, really, <laughs> Twitter chat. Sherry, how about you tell us what the topic of that Twitter chat was? Hi, everybody. Yes, the topic of our chat was a fascinating paper recently published in Science. And the topic is the tipping point of social of changing social norms or how a minority can overturn established social behaviors. So the uh, discussion centers around the um, question of uh, the ability of committed minorities to change social norms. And it draws upon a, a theory called a theory of critical mass. And the theory argues that when a committed minority reaches a critical group size, the social system crosses a tipping point, which triggers a cascade of behavior change. So, for example, if you are a committed minority and you think there's really something that needs to change in your community, how many committed minorities do you need in order to change minds? Now, Based on observations from uh, social science research and also models that social scientists had developed, the, uh, there is a range of tipping points that was suggested for this number, uh, which was about 10 to 40 percent. But this has all been based on either models or based on just um, extrapolations from these uh, observations people have had uh, on the ways that human beings change their societies. There has never been a real evidence to show whether this tipping point actually exists. Is it even real? So the authors decided to, to test that. Um, so that's when they set up their experiment and they did it online. Um, what they did was that they created artificially, of course, this is an experiment in a lab, a system of coordination in which a minority group of actors try to disrupt and, uh, and establish equilibrium behavior. So what, what, how was the experiment set up where they recruited subjects from um, an online recruiting platform? Apparently there was a space where people could go and recruit, randomly recruit subjects. And then they were randomly assigned pairwise into groups. And then in this pairwise pairing, they presented the participants with an image. And they asked them to come to an agreement on a naming convention for that image. Um, so they, 
they repeated this um, over a number of different rounds. And the way they provided incentive to participants was that if they agreed on the same name on an image, they would get a little bit of money. But if they chose different names, they would be financially penalized. So there was an initial incentive for people to cooperate to one another. So they did this until they were able to establish in their groups a, um, a norm with respect to the naming convention. So then these participants were assigned into one to 10 independent online groups. So these groups had about 20 to 30 people in them. And each of these groups had uh, come up with an agreement for the naming convention. Then when this uh, convention was clearly established, then they started introducing uh, minorities into these groups of variety, variety of sizes. So um, they went, the, uh, variety, the sizes could vary somewhere between 10% to 35%, between 15 to 35%. And then they started comparing the groups in terms of uh, changing the group's mind. They conducted five trials and then they compared communities pairwise. Um, so that was, that was the method, and the results uh, were fascinating. First of all, before they did their experiment, they developed a model, and I don't know, don't ask me how they developed the model, because um, it's way over my head. Uh, but uh, they had developed a model for a society like this, for a situation like this, and the model predicted that the tipping point would be 25% uh, composition of the community uh, that would be those minorities. So the minority, the committed minority would have to reach 25% for the community to flip. That was the switch that had to be turned on. And it is fascinating that their results that they obtained was in agreement with what they predicted. So if size of the committed minority were less than 25% of population, the minorities failed to flip the social norm. But if size of the community was greater than 25% population, they were able to achieve flipping views between 72 to 100%. So that was fascinating. And sometimes even 1% difference going from 24% to 25% that even made a difference. So uh, the conclusion is that yes, there is this tipping point that social scientists have been predicting and extrapolating from the observation. It actually does exist. And there is a number to it, as specifically at least for this uh, experimental setup. Wow, this is fascinating indeed. And 
one thing first, 25% to me sounds like a lot. And second of all, um, I have a question to that. If you know by any chance, were they, uh, those minorities, were they allowed to use only persuasive and rationing, uh, well, rationalizing techniques? Or did they had basically every possible technique for persuasion or for influencing? I don't think they were instructed in any way as to how to agree. They, they just had to agree on the naming, on a naming convention for an image. And they were rewarded uh, if they agreed and penalized if they didn't. And we actually did a Twitter poll. Uh, we often do Twitter polls before our chats just to get the discussion going. And we asked people, what do you think the minority is? And the results were kind of all over the place. Um, I remember I severely underestimated it. <laughs> I think, yeah, a lot of people did. Because if you think about it, we framed it in terms of a town of uh, 100,000. And the answer is you have to have 25,000 people that have to go and change mindsets a lot. That's incredible. Maria, what was your guess for the poll? My guess was that a lot of people would have overestimated it because I imagined to be something like 30, 40% at least. But I don't know. I don't know. That's just me. Maybe I'm thinking about certain topics that would take more of a percentage that we'll talk about later. But, for example? Uh, for example, a more emotional topic, something that has to do way more with things that you really care about in your personal life, such as what you eat or whether you should vaccinate your children, you know, things like that. Yeah, definitely. When um, when it, when it comes to those topics, obviously it's, uh, the sheer number uh, is one factor. But and then and then once somebody actually asked that question while we were discussing this, taking the poll, and uh, some people say, well, you know, twenty five percent of what? That numbers may not be enough. That's why when I framed the question in the poll, I said trained science communications so these are people that actually know how to communicate and still that's a lot and heather what was your estimation if you remember oh you know i feel like it was so many weeks ago that i barely remember what i had for breakfast or, or what i did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so i and plus i read the paper so i don't know that i was like a fair you know <laughs> yeah. wasn't a fair you weren't unbiased anymore exactly so I, but this was a really interesting study, and I think some really interesting questions really came out of not just the paper, but also from our discussion on the Twitter chat. Tell us about it. So, you know, in the idea about how, you know, how many people and 25% seeming like a lot to be able to convert uh, a group of people, it's... What do you do in the situation that maybe there aren't 25%, like maybe the minority that would be needed based on this study isn't even there? So what do you do in sort of those low number environments? Uh, that's a very good question, a very tricky situation. So what do you do? Yeah, I was just going to say, that I think what probably in most situations is the answer is grassroots, mobilizing, not just that few minorities, but just really, um, and, and it, it takes time, but it would have to be, I think, Heather, you uh, pointed to something like that. So, so that was one of my 
thinking, you know, thinking on that, I mean, in terms of, okay, it might take 25% of, of, you know, trained science communicators, but in order to kind of bolster the, you know, that, that minority that would be needed to make change, if those numbers aren't available, then what you could do potentially is teach non-scientists to actually be science advocates. So, so yes, you're right, creating that grassroots movement, that grassroots energy and that grassroots knowledge. And I thought of that as sort of being indirect science communication. So all of us that are trained science communicators, we're doing what I would say is direct science communication, but that indirect science communication among the people, even in whatever small way they're doing it, even if it's not as extensive as what we're doing, if they can advocate for science, if they can advocate for something very specific related to science communication, then that actually could potentially bolster your numbers for specific you know, situations or circumstances. I have another question to that, actually. Does this exercise in this setup assume that you don't have another minority that is trying to promote like the opposite of what you're trying, like the opposite opinion to enforce it to the community that you're trying to uh, communicate? Because that would definitely make your life harder and maybe the percentage would then even increase. Well, that, that was a really, that's a really interesting question. And, and that sort of was touched on a little bit during our Twitter chat, but I don't know that we came up with any answers to that. But yes, the issue of this was, you know, intended, the study was really looking at positive change, like turn, you know, turning a group of established norms or people believe in established norm to something else. But the question of how do you prevent negative change came up during our Twitter chat. And I think that that sort of speaks to the question that you're asking is what do you do when there's pressure against something back? And I don't know, honestly, I'd love to chat more about this with the group. And, and certainly if our listeners have thoughts on this too, because I think this is a really interesting question that wasn't addressed during the, the study. Oh, yes. And uh, I, I was just thinking as we were discussing this, the positive and the negative 25%. So who is the 25%? What if those 25% are people with a lot of power? Celebrities with lots of fans that strongly believe vaccines are more dangerous than the diseases they're meant to prevent, and they have a lot of influence. So if you have a 25% um, experts in science and 25% celebrities that are saying the opposite. Um, it kind of depends on the environment they're in. What is the public reacting to? Are they Would they rather go with somebody famous? Uh, would they rather go with a scientist? Do they trust the scientists enough and have enough science communication background and science understanding to even be affected by those, you know, let's say good 25%. So it's about the power that the 25% has. Yeah, it all, it all comes back to, these are all uh, fascinating and great points that this uh, study doesn't consider, and these are the factors that need to be considered. Uh, so, for example, who the messenger is, even though someone's a celebrity, uh, doesn't really mean that they're going to have any traction uh, within a community. Um, so yes, there are other factors that are involved. And then with respect to negative change, um, if you want to prevent something from happening, it's, I see it as the same thing. If you have, if there are people within a community that want to get or doing something that they shouldn't be doing, uh, still you need that committed minority to prevent them from doing it. 
I, I think the question is, is this committed minority, is that always going to be 25%? I think that that's the question that we're, we're kind of all wondering, or does that change depending on the issue, depending on the context, and depending on what the minority actually needs to do? Because this is this was a simulated study, um, which was very, very interesting, but applying the results or, and, and what we learned from the study to real world situations is that in the real world, this stuff is much more complicated. And especially in the universe that I exist in, which is public policy and, and politics, you know, looking at those issues that are really complicated and those social dynamics get to be something that, that's much harder, I think, to deal with and resolve and to change. And so the question comes up of, you know, say we're trying to prevent something that ultimately is an issue that's tied to people's beliefs, their self-identity, something that's far more personal than, say, a naming convention, which was what was used in the simulation for this study. How would you deal with that? Because I, I, my guess would be that if it's something that's a more personal issue that people couldn't necessarily detach from, then it's going to require a higher number. Yeah, that's true. But it also goes, so we go again back to conditions being ideal. So an example is within the evangelical community where they're mostly reject climate change and they, for years and years and years, they didn't listen to climate scientists. But uh, what turned the tide, and if you watch the um, Years of Living Dangerously, it's available on YouTube, uh, their first episode, it features Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist, and she's also an evangelist. So before she went and talked to this group of evangelists down in Texas, uh, there's a the whole town who lost their jobs because the company they worked in closed their doors because of drought and no water and things like that. And before that, they weren't willing to accept that there's anything that human beings were doing. But when she went and talked to that group, things changed. People started changing their minds. Um, so it does make a difference who the messenger is and how much overlap in terms of values they have. And one of the uh, people in the movie, one of the Texans said, well, I'm not willing to listen to scientists telling me this or that, but she, is an evangelical, she's a Christian, so I'm willing to listen to her. Mm -hmm. So the idea also, this is, um, when we talk about this tipping point, the assumption is that uh, the idea, the conditions are ideal. The science communicator knows how to communicate, the science communicator has overlap of, and th these are my extensions from it, that's not discussed in the paper. Um, it has overlap of values. Uh, they're part of the community. Um, so that's, it brings us back to that grassroots discussion that we can't expect to train 25,000 science communicators and get them all to write op-eds or become science journalists and expect a change. It would have to be integrated into those communities. So I guess for me, I'm actually kind of still stuck on this idea, though, of that personal topic, because even if somebody is somebody that you trust, that you identify with the values, if the issue is something that you hold very, very near and dear to your heart, your self-identity, which is something that we've talked about in previous episodes, um, is tied, tied to, say, like something to do with food and your beliefs about food or 
or vaccines, for another example, um, those are things that are tied to somebody's sense of self, self-identity. And even if somebody, you know, you have a science communicator and the messenger is somebody that you identify with, that there's something in common, those are going to be some really deep-seated, potentially, you know, difficult issues to change or for you to, you know, come around to. So again, I think when we're talking about tipping points and limiting is, you know, sort of focusing this question to what's the tipping point you know, the number of folks required to change minds, to change behaviors, that I think gets to that, that sort of throws a a wrench in the whole thing. And I think that makes it a lot more difficult. And so uh, I don't know if Maria would like to weigh in since she's the expert on food and all things food, but I thought this was an interesting sort of idea and question. Yes, and as I mentioned earlier, that's where my assumption of what the percentage would be was higher, because I tend to think about topics that I deal with, right? It is related to food and health, and uh, these topics, I believe, are usually more personal, not just because that's how you experience the world around you and nature around you, but like Heather said, it's part of your identity. You also have personal experience with it, so why would you trust someone else telling you something else? Also, with something like food, the issue is more complex than just, is this thing good? or bad for me to eat. It also taps into trust of technology, trust of science, understanding of science perhaps, but I think it's more about um, the perception of scientists and what what are they after, who are they working with, uh, what does it mean for my, not just myself, but the environment, what does it mean for other creatures. So when you get to such a, something so complex, it's very easy to be um, stuck in what makes sense to you. And I'm not sure 25% is an appropriate tipping point for a topic like that. Uh, actually, our next Twitter chat will discuss how do you tackle a very complex and divisive topics such as genetical engineering, for example. That's not going anywhere. There's more things coming out on the market. I don't know if you've heard about this new lab-created meats that are coming. People have a lot of strong opinions about that. They're not just about health, but they're also about environment. They're also about animals. They're about what is right or wrong to do on this planet, morality. So that's why I I can tell, and I, I think that's too complicated to create another experiment with all these things in mind and factors. So I'm not sure what the answer is in terms of what is the tipping point for a completely different topic that's much more complex. I think part of it is really being expressed about, you know, being very, very clear about what the issues are that we've listed. Um, Those social dynamics make a huge difference because, you know, the issue dynamics make a huge difference. And I think one of the things that we haven't brought up so far is actually the way the interactions happened. Uh, This was a strictly online environment, which means that by not being face-to-face with somebody, you lose a huge amount of communication potentially, right? Like you lose all of that nonverbal communication, which makes up the majority of how we communicate and relate to each other. And so in that, you know, in that kind of an environment, it potentially may be easier for somebody to distance themselves from the topic and say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to listen to new information, new perspectives, and potentially be persuaded. But in a face-to-face interaction, in an in-real-life space, does that change? Because then you're getting 100% of those communication dynamics, nonverbal, verbal what, you know, that might be a much more powerful experience. And so persuasiveness on either side for or against may be a lot stronger. Those effects may be stronger for for all the people involved. And so I think that that's something that we haven't really touched on 
And so that might be kind of a, an interesting avenue as well, is that when we talk about science communication, we talk about methods that are being done online. And now some of the, the newer stuff and the stuff that we've done with SciComm JC, we've started talking about what it means to have conversations with each other about science. Those in real life interactions. And those are fundamentally different than the online ones. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's interesting. I think one-on-one uh, -on -one is always going to be powerful, but online um, communities could also be powerful because people make a lot of their connections in that way. Um, so this makes me think of this example of a girl who gave a TED talk um, who was totally, I can't remember what her position was, but she came from an evangelical community and she was against vaccination or commented, I can't remember, and she joined Twitter and uh, this person who actually she ended up marrying him. Uh, he started uh, communication with her online by Twitter and by being very patient and taking the time with her, she, he was actually able to change her mind. And she was giving a talk about her conversion and the way, the patient way that this, this person talked to her and was able to get her to think. So I think one-on-one -on -one, uh, in person is going to be very effective because it's more personal. Um, and it also goes back to the grassroots efforts. Um, but online outreach, if it is done properly, I think could also be very powerful because on, in online people tend to gather together within communities anyways. They join groups they follow specific hashtags. So, and actually an example that was given in the, um, in the paper was the Chinese government who hired people to go and enter conversations on their equivalent of Twitter in China and to change the conversations on, uh, on that social network from complaining about people's uh, challenges into uh, pride about national conversations. And we've seen it during our 2016 election, and it is still going on, that those committed minorities that inject themselves into conversations can be very powerful in being decisive, in determining elections, in getting people to change their minds. So I would say that in-person could be very powerful, but uh, I would not underestimate the power of online efforts. So you're saying exposure really is sort of the deterministic factor then, not necessarily the mode of communication? Exposure, well, not, not only exposure, it has, well, given that everything else is perfect. So uh, not only exposure, but ability to be able to engage and talk to each other. So just because somebody sees an article that has if they see 25% uh, articles that are against their point of view, that's not going to change people's minds. If they, they, if they don't agree with it, social science has shown that people just ignore it. We tend to look for information that agree with our points of view and ignore the ones that they don't. 
and it happens in conservative and liberal and all sorts of communities. So not only exposure, but interaction. Mm-hmm. And I am thinking about uh, when you're talking about online, I'm really not thinking just about written communication. I think it's so powerful to use video and actually see the scientists talk about their work, explain their work. There's something about it, seeing their gestures, seeing their, hey, they're just a human being like me with similar values. That's really important. And, you know, there is a project on Instagram trying to get scientists to actually take selfies while they do their work to be like, hey, we work just like you on similar issues where this is what we care about. I'm actually very excited to see if they were able to change people's perceptions of scientists that way. But that's something I think about. Online has so much potential and it doesn't have to be limited to written you know, communication. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm so happy that scientists are starting to come out into, come out of the closet and into these social networks and they can actually they can see that scientists can be funny, they can be clever. It's amazing how much um, comedic stuff I can find on the internet to help me teach science in my classroom. So uh, we are so, scientists are so um, clever in their humor. It's fantastic. Great to see that. I have a question to all of you. Um, We've been talking so far about situation where there's actually at least two existing opinions about a topic and one has to prevail for the sake of the exercise or for the sake of public health or whatever the, the, the problem is. What do we do when there isn't actually enough knowledge at all going around in that uh, hypothetical 100,000 people city to actually have an opinion? How do you start informing all these people? Do you have to start teaching them from scratch about the problem and then trying to provide them with the solution? Or what do you introduce the, directly the solution and then uh, help them realize what the problem was? What do, what do you guys think? if they don't actually have an opinion that needs to be turned? Okay, so well, I think uh, research in in, uh, climate change communication has shown that you don't really need to communicate the science to change people's minds. It all has to do with how uh, it relates to them, how it benefits them. And then a great example of it is right in the heart of Texas. Uh, it's oil country and there's a lot of anti-climate change people that you try to talk to them. Uh, but there is this county within uh, Texas, which has gone totally wind energy. Um, and really, they didn't do it because they understood the science, because they saw the money that it saves them with respect to, um, with respect to running their farms. So the answer isn't always getting people to understand the science. You have to kind of find out um, the angle that would best help them to see the benefits of something. And uh, sometimes that's kind of hard to do, but, but the answer is they don't always have to know um, the the information, the science. Indeed, I feel like it's been shown in um, for many topics, right, that the def- knowledge deficit model is actually not correct. People don't change their minds by knowing more information at all. It's about appealing to them on different levels or emotional levels or the levels of personal values. And that's what you're talking about with your example. It looks like that's a lot more um, successful, actually. 
And that's actually true. That is backed up by, you know, public opinion research um, is that there are people with different levels of sophistication, different knowledge of, you know, attention levels, knowledge, um, all of those different components sort of make up what someone is going to attend to in terms of a message and also how effective that message may or may not be for that particular person. And, you know, yeah, you, they don't really, they're not going to respond to facts. They're not going to respond to information most of the time if they're not already somehow interested in the topic and they don't already understand how somehow that topic is relevant to their lives. If they're checked out, they're going to stay checked out until you sort of give them a reason to not be. Mm-hmm. So were there any really vital uh, take-home messages from that Twitter chat that you ladies would like to share <laughs> with our listeners? Um, well, I can wrap up and then uh, Heather and Maria can share theirs. Sure, go ahead. So uh, when before we started the Twitter chat, as I mentioned, we usually do a poll. And in the poll, I wrote the text of the poll uh, was that, well, it's, I think we can pretty much assume that the scientific community is on board with the importance of science communication and blah, blah. And then I had people reply to me saying, really? Are we there yet? So probably the most fascinating thing that came out of this conversation, which is why we should have these conversations and chats on Twitter and in here, uh, is that uh, SciCommerce came on Twitter uh, expressing their frustration with their departments and their principal investigators and people that sit at the top that they don't value their work. They don't see the value of it. So, And one participant during the chat brought up a very clever twist to the discussion. He said, well, what if the 25% committed minority is that group of PIs and, and decision makers who are strongly disagree with scientists spending any time on SciComm? So he was presenting that. And I thought, that's very good. And it kind of... Um, so I think I personally was a little bit too optimistic about where the scientific community is with respect to the value placed on SciComm. And it brought home to point that we have more work to do within the science community itself. We have to build the consensus within the science community before we expect to go and change things in the larger society. So it just takes more train, more than just training of a few psychon trainers and science writers um, for us to change things. So we need to change things in our own communities. It is important that we train psychomers and scientists and for people to become science writers and journalists, but it has to go deeper than that because of that 25% that we talked about. And then IU replied when we were doing these conversations, when we talked about the poll, you said, really? You need 25,000 uh, people in a town of 100,000 to be psychomers? What, what else? What? I mean, there are people that there's other jobs that need to be done. Yeah. So, no, I still can't wrap my mind yeah, around that. that number honestly. is really large. So I think it is... Probably the solution is, again, we go back to citizen science and grassroots, and it is really up to each and every one of us to integrate SciComm into our daily lives and involve citizen scientists, teachers at all levels. And one of the places where, and I'm going to wrap up with this, um, 
I think educators and especially at the K through 12 or even higher education are in the great position to build that uh, that army of people that go out and talk to science because we are talking to them every day. So one thing I do in my classroom is I ask my students to, to write a simple explanation, a jargon-free explanation about what they learned in class and go and show it, share it with their family and friends. Um, and come, and that's a part of their homework. They, they earn points for that. So not only by the virtue of having to explain it to somebody else, it helps them learn the material better. It also helps us use the army of students we have at our disposal to spread the message. Uh, and finally, it's important to realize that change takes time, but we have to keep at it. I have a quick one. I just want to say this is a great, fascinating study. It's a great beginning because it would be very rough to design an experiment that includes a range of factors we discussed that are extremely important, such as who is the minority, what power do they have in the community, what's the topic, and how important emotional it is for people. So it's possible that the tipping point can vary quite a bit once these factors are considered. We wouldn't know yet. And I really enjoyed seeing a lot of the comments on Twitter about how to create that committed minority Somebody mentioned vaccinating people with scientific understanding, so they're less affected by perhaps competing committed minorities that are spreading poor information. So that's great. And I guess the puzzle is how do you do that well? But yeah, that's my five cents. I, I will just say ditto to everything that, that Maria and Sherry mm -hmm. said. That an excellent way to, to land this. And honestly, this, I think for me, this study, it was very, very interesting. And it brought up for me more questions in, in our discussion. The more we discuss this, the more questions I have. So I don't have any conclusions that I'm walking away with or answers, but I have more things to think about. And certainly I'm excited about potentially doing some research around these areas, these questions that we've brought up and some of these issues that we've brought up. So uh, I'm just lost in thought right now, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so we should basically follow the science on that and keep our listeners and Twitter followers updated. A good thing it's exactly what we exist for. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for the great summary of our Twitter chat and for the Twitter chat itself. We have already an announcement for our next Twitter chat, which will be hosted by Maria. So why don't you tell us sure. about it? It's coming up this month, September 25th, Tuesday as usual, 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the topic is science communication for extra controversial topics. Tips from experts who communicate science of genetically engineered Foods. And it's actually a two-for-one deal because I will summarize two articles, the original paper from people who are science communicating on the topic and a published response to that paper from another group of science communicators who want to add uh, some of their own knowledge and expertise. As if the current topics weren't controversial enough already, but I like the challenge. <laughs> Looking forward We love controversy it. here. <laughs> Well, people, listeners, if you want to follow that Twitter chat, as uh, Maria said, 25th of September, 6 p.m. Pacific time or recalculated for your own time zone. To be able to do that, make sure you follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC, where you can get all other updates for events, uh, our summaries appearing on our uh, webpage. Uh, don't forget also to subscribe to our newsletter. You can do that by visiting our website 
website uh, at www.psychomjc.org. Uh, there you can also find summaries from previous Twitter chats and you can find all the possible channels where you can connect with us, the Psychom JC uh, members. And you can always leave us a message with an opinion or if you want to participate in one of the Twitter chats or host a chat, we will be more than happy if you have an interesting interesting topic or psychom activity to hear it so follow us and don't forget to share our podcast with your friends we'll be very happy if you join our next episode thanks for joining and thanks girls for for the lovely uh, conversation thank you psychom jc is sponsored by captive touch a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication it is recorded by the psychom jc team and produced and edited by me, Nevena Christozova. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this fifth episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you like it, share it and please let us know. Till next time and stay nerdy.